Hello, this is the Angry GM, and this is the mostly monthly my my Matt. Damn it! <laughs> One of these days, I'm gonna get the bingo bingo already. No, no take two. We just I'm one take angry. Uh, though not if you were listening to me recording today's uh, to listening to the uh, what you call it. Uh, hold on a second. This is the mostly monthly live chat for the month of March 2023. And I am your host, the Angry GM. Anyway, yeah, I'm good old one take angry because I refuse to um, do more than one take. Not, I'm lazy. That's the thing. You know, I'm not good at it. I just, the, the only reason like I could do the, the, um, the proofread allowance is because, oh, Radder Crash doesn't actually edit me for content. Stu is saying Radder, uh, quoting Radder Crash as saying sigh, but Radder Crash doesn't edit me for content. I think he does cut out, like, if there's an excessively long pause, but um, that's about the end of it. Though I am going to pause recording for just a second because I seem to be clipping a little bit and I don't know why other than the fact that I'm uh, my my uh, voice level is just up and down and up and down so much for the low energy thing. All right. I don't know what's wrong with the audio level, but I'll try to keep it under control. So anyway, yeah, today was recording the proofread aloud for the late article that was supposed to go into early access. Uh, yesterday the 14th, and we'll be going into early access tomorrow the 16th. Uh, right after, by the way, I insisted that I was back on schedule and everything was grand. Um, and then I decided to change my plans very slightly and write a different uh, article than the one I had originally planned because there was some stuff I wanted to cover, and it became a disaster. It was like five rewrites, and like not even five rewrites. It was like at every step of the process, I threw it out and started again. So first, just the broad summary was like, okay, this is crap. I got to start over. Then outlining, this was crap and it's uh, it's thrown out. Then I got like three quarters of the way through the gra- th- draft and I'm like, this sucks. No. Uh, then I went through the rewrite and I'm like, okay, the draft was okay, but this rewrite sucks. So I'm going to start rewriting from scratch. Um, and then halfway through the, the rewrite, I decided to tank the draft. Um, so then I started redrafting and then I started drafting and rewriting in quick succession where I would do write a section, rewrite it, write a section, rewrite it. Um, and then finally I finished it today and then I recorded it and I don't want like, I don't want to taint opinions of it. Um, I couldn't get this one to be the way I wanted it to. And I think I'm hoping it will be remembered as that one bad article in the whole, uh, a angry, uh, the, the true game mastery series, rather than the moment when the true game mastery series went off the rails and jumped the shark. Though in reality, every time I have hated one of my articles, um, it, it you know, it receives massive accolades. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But, um, anyway, so that was today and that was not one take because it then took me three or four tries to record the proofread aloud. And as I was saying, the only reason I started doing the proofread aloud as a podcast is because it was the only way anybody could possibly do a podcast where they didn't have to edit it and where they could just keep in all their flubs and uhs and ums and stupid comments and burps and slurps and everything else. So <laughs> that said, I am considering trying to turn Ask Angry into a periodic podcast, um, which will be treated with a little more um, uh, polish than the proofread allows. And frankly, I would have stopped doing the proofread loads, allows, proofread allows, allows, if Radder Crash didn't come along and offer to at least clean up the audio quality because I am not an audio sound engineering uh, guy, person, thing. Anyway, so this is the Mostly Monthly Live Chat for the month of March, and already we are totally on the rails. Um, I don't actually have a lot to discuss tonight, uh, as it were. Uh, I, wa- I do want to... So there's, there's a couple of things uh, that I am going to 
deal with. But mostly I have gotten some very interesting questions in the mostly monthly live chat Q&A thread, all of which came in in like the last two days. Uh, though actually I think I only put the mostly monthly live chat Q&A thread up in the last two days, or maybe I just put it up today. Either way, a bunch of questions came in today. Some of them are really interesting. Some of them are gonna take some time, and some of them I am totally gonna dodge because they're not the sort of thing I could answer in a half hour extemporaneously. But there's a couple of things I do want to mention. First, uh, this is just a little side stuff, but, um, and, and I don't have any news either. Like I already put out the update for the month. The update for the month is what it is. And I'm not totally off schedule because one article came out late. I will still be on schedule for next week. It was just this particular article was a disaster and a half. Anyway, number one, uh, Tiny and I, or Tiny and Tiny, wait, Tiny and I, and I have picked up a couple of new board games and we've had a chance to try them out. And I just wanted to call some attention to them because they turned out to be particularly fun. Okay, first of all, we picked up a board game called Richard Garfield's Dungeons, Dice, and Danger. And I picked it up on the strength of just the adorable maps in it. Because, it, so it is a roll and write game. And if you don't know uh, board gaming terminology, as I don't, because I don't speak board game, but nonetheless, this is a roll and write game, which involves you having a piece of paper of some kind with something drawn or written on it and dice are rolled. And then you mark off things in an attempt to accomplish something. Thus on your turn, you roll and write. And in this case, you roll a handful of dice and then the players, uh, make combinations of dice in order to check off specific rooms in an adorable dungeon map and attack monsters. Uh, and Nitsua has already posted the link to it on Board Game Geek. Um, so thank you for that. Um, this is one of those games I bought because it was cute and because it's Richard Garfield, who is the original designer of Magic the Gathering, as well as Robo Rally and several other games. He's he's a very very talented game designer. Um, I mean, he invented Magic the Gathering, so there you go. But um, and I looked, I picked it up because it seemed cute and casual, the sort of thing we could just break out um, and then you know and play once in a while. And then Tiny and I sat down and we played through one or two of the four different dungeons that are supplied with the game. And by the way, there is also a solo mode, so it supports anywhere between one and four players. And the solo mode does have slightly different rules, so it works as a true solo mode. It's not just, you know, play alone for the best score. I mean, it, it is sort of, but not, not the same. But anyway, as we started to play it, and then we find ourselves struggling to run through all the permutations of the five dice um, so that, you know, to add them up and, and we figure out which rooms you can mark off and whether to claim victory points this turn or attack a monster or whatever, uh, it became a very intensely thinky game. It does not look like it is, and yet nonetheless, if you like a complicated thinky game um, that is also cute with nice art, um, Dungeons, Dice, and Danger did actually surprise me. The other thing I picked up, this is the one that I didn't play with Tiny because this is a solo only game um, that recently became available for sale even though it, it, it did have a Kickstarter a while back, and I, I think there was some controversy around the Kickstarter and some rewards not getting fulfilled properly, and some people were angry, and I gotta say, I didn't even look into it or care because, you know, everything these days has a controversy and I can't be asked to care. So, you know, if I stopped doing, playing everything that had controversy, I, well, first of all, I would have to stop play, using my own stuff. Um, and then also Dungeon Dragons and literally everything else ever published because everything is a controversy now. So I don't give a crap. Anyway, Unbroken um, is a board game. The theme of which is you are an adventurer who joined a party to delve into a dungeon. The entire party was killed, but save for you. And you must now navigate your way back to the surface with just your bare hands and whatever food you can scavenge and fight your way through four increasingly difficult levels of, 
um, random encounters and boss monsters. Uh, the game purports to, uh, or the game claims to try and capture the roguelike experience of, you know, trying to make a run through a, uh, a like a randomized dungeon. Um, and it does, to a greater or lesser extent, actually manage to pull it off. One of the nice things about it is, unlike most games um, that kill you over and over until you get lucky enough to win, this one is a very quick setup and a very quick play. You know, like, the, that's the key to video games where, you know, the, the pick-up-and-die games, like, you know, the Souls's and everything... Um, is that they respawn you quick and get you right back into the action so that you can start playing again immediately. Otherwise, you get frustrated dying over and over again. You know, Super Meat Boy being the er example of you die and you are immediately playing again, right? Well, Unbroken actually pulls that off and thus manages to not be a frustrating pain in the ass to play. Um, the first time I played it, uh, I died um, in about seven minutes of playing it. Um, and then a few minutes later I was playing again and then I made it almost to the, to the fourth level and then died. Um, and it's neat. There, there's a lot of resource management. There's a lot of looking ahead and planning your moves with care and knowing, uh, and, you know, looking at the monster stats and pushing your luck and trying to figure out you know, trying to trying to set yourself up for victory on each level and deciding how to push your luck and when to engage the monster. And really, the biggest enemy in the game is the clock. Um, so anyway, so that's it. Just two board games that I picked up that I happen to particularly like um, in, in case anybody wants some suggestions. I did want to talk briefly about my GMing credo, which is something that I was supposed to talk about last month. It came up recently um, in an Ask Angry uh, capacity, and I mentioned I dropped uh, some. I, I dropped a hint that I would talk about it, and then never did. Okay, so the story is um, several years ago. I wrote this article. Um, and I can't even remember what the article was called now. Um, <laughs> so somebody find, search up and find the article in which I wrote my GM and Credo, uh, and let me know what the heck the article is called. Um, but in it, I wrote a list of the, uh, 23 rules that I consider to be core to my GMing philosophy. And then I wrote a little paragraph about each one. Uh, someone asked me about one of them, which I had refused to explain at the time. And it was the first one. I am a dungeon master. Because even though I refer to myself as the angry game master, and I refer to game masters exclusively on my uh, blog, that is more for not being a, um, not, you know, not being a slave to Wizards of the Coast and Dungeon Dragons here, because, you know. You know, so I am legally distinct from a dungeon master, but nonetheless, I consider myself a dungeon master. And someone asked me what the hell that actually means and why. And Proselys, the producer, is telling me that the article was entitled Thy Game Mastering Commandments and was posted. I don't know when it was posted. I don't think my articles post their dates, which some people have gotten after me about. It's like, why do you? Oh, yeah, it was January 20th, 2014. This article, is that really... Is this article really that old? Yes, it is. It is like uh, nine years old now. Yeah. So, and it's actually kind of funny to see how many of these rules still actually apply to me. And I mentioned that only two of them no longer apply. And I challenged people to guess which ones, um, guess which ones applied. So, just very quickly, my 23 rules were thus. I am a dungeon master. I own the game. And you, you see that that has uh, permeated the True Game Mastery series, by the way, the concept of ownership, right? Uh, everyone who agrees to abide by my rules is welcome at my table. Every offense deserves an apology. 
I am an at-will employer. I can't run a game without trust. I will always be fair and consistent. Another thing that has informed um, my writing, because I consider that a core aspect of running role-playing games, fairness and consistency. The rules are a tool and they belong to me. The world is my character. I am not on the player's sides, but I am not their enemies. I am not their enemy either. I will not take a character's freedom away unless the player agrees. I take my game seriously and I will let my players do the same. Adventurers lead exciting lives. Nothing can be solved through inaction. The players and the characters are reflections through a clouded mirror, which I actually wrote an entire article about. I will not create challenges that can be broken by metagaming, um, which was not me saying I'm going to reskin all my monsters so my players never know what's up. That means that the focus of a challenge will never be something that I will sit there and say, well, players knew what, I, what it was about, so they ruined it. Okay, I have absolutely no problem if players exploit a monster's weakness and destroy it. Okay, the second time they fight the monster, uh, they're going to have to come up with a better plan. But the first time, sure, rip it apart. Okay, if there is any ambiguity at all, a player can veto a character's death. Players should know all the options their characters have. Uh, players, uh, I will never allow a character to ignorantly take a substantial risk. Another thing that I addressed very recently um, in always giving the players the benefit of the doubt and assuming that players take these take the most reasonable path to their goals. Uh, I will never require a player to count squares, which I now realize was basically the same thing. Um, I will never allow a character to ignorantly attempt the impossible, which is in my, you know, again, spelled out in my whole, hey, you know, you have, if your player is attempting something that can't succeed and the character should know that, then you should tell them rather than letting them waste the time and the resources. I will always allow the characters a break, which is a key to good pacing. And I will strive to never require the players to ask what their characters know, which is one thing that I will address stringently in the article being posted tomorrow. Anyway, um, a lot of people guessed that the rule that I was no longer following, and this actually upsets me, and this is why I want to discuss this, is number four, every offense deserves an apology. Okay, um, because I have made a point of poking fun at what I consider to be the perpetually offended in the internet community for one reason or another, because these days everybody is offended on someone's behalf for something. And if you think I'm just talking about one side of one issue, you are wrong. I mean everybody. Okay. But anyway, just because the internet community is like that, that doesn't mean I comport myself in a way um, where if I have hurt someone's feelings, I will not apologize. Okay, the fact of the matter is, as soon as someone's feelings are hurt, whether I believe or not that their reasons for their feelings being hurt are valid, it is still undeniable that I did not intend to hurt someone's feelings. I do not attempt to hurt people's feelings as a matter of course. So before any conversation can happen to resolve the conflict, the first thing that needs to be made clear is, I did not intend to hurt you, and I am a sorry for the hurt that happened. I'm not assuming full-on responsibility, per se. I'm also not saying I'm not responsible at all, okay? It's not one of those, I'm sorry, you were hurt, non-apology things. It is a legitimate policy. Uh, apology. I regret a hurt happened. I never intended for something I did to be hurtful. We can talk about it, but we have to talk about it from the framework that I do not want you to feel hurt. Okay, that is what I mean when I say every offense deserves an apology. That does not mean every screaming moron in my comment section um, is, is treated the same, okay? There's a difference between people in my circle of friends and people at my table and screaming morons on the internet, okay? But there we go. I have not removed the every, defense, every offense deserves an apology. That being said, have there been times when I felt that someone's offense was something that I couldn't as a GM get past and keep running my game and said, 
I am sorry you were offended. I'm sorry this happened. I'm sorry we've reached this point. But also, we can't get past it, and you might want to seek a different table. That does happen, too. That doesn't mean I'm not sorry, and that doesn't mean I wish it were different. But just because you're sorry for something doesn't mean you're going to change it, either. That's where the conversation and the negotiation happens. This is adult conflict resolution, kids. Learn it and love it. Anyway, the two rules that have changed are number, are, are number 17. If there is any ambiguity at all, a player can veto a character death. I once had a secret rule that players only discovered by discovering it, and that is when their character died, I pulled them from the table. First of all, like death saves and the resolution of when they died, and, you know, all that was resolved behind the screen or, you know, in secret. So nobody knew until somebody was able to lean down next to the character and check a pulse whether the character was actually alive or not. And then at that moment, when a character had fallen and they were making death saves and they had to keep making death saves even after they died or whatever it was, depending on the addition, at the point where someone was able to get the, get to them and actually assess their health, I pulled the character, the player out of the room and asked them, are you alive or are, no, actually I didn't. I just asked them right then and there. I gave them a speech away from the table. This is what I did. I would pull them away from the table. And I would say, when we get back to the table, I'm going to ask you if you are, if your character is alive or dead. You may give whatever answer you want. You know whether your character is actually alive or dead based on the rules. I will never know based on the rules whether your character was alive or dead, and I do not care. But I'm going to take you back to the table now, and I'm going to ask you in front of everyone, hey, is your character alive or dead? And then you give whatever answer you want and never tell anybody the truth, okay? And uh, almost every time, like, I had a, characters die a lot. So it, it, that told me something about players. I no longer follow that rule. I no longer feel that that serves a good end. I have come to a different conclusion lately. The other question is, or the other thing that has changed is number 11. I will not take a character's freedom away unless the player agrees. Okay. And this gets in, this might sound weird because I am so big into player agency. Okay. But what I have come to realize is that because a GM, and this is something that also gets addressed in tomorrow's article is the nature, the relationship between player and character and literally where the player is inside the character. Okay, I had to invoke Rene Descartes to do it, but tomorrow I will reveal to the world where the player is inside the character, literally, okay? And one of the things I realized is that it is possible to take the character's agency away in terms of things like mind control or imprisonment or what have you, other things, you, you know, you know, there, there are ways that a character falls under control. Like a, a vampire dominates them and crushes their will and they may, they can't fight their way free. Okay. The player still has total freedom to think and feel however they want about the situation. The problem is the character is no longer in the player's control because the character is no longer listening to their own will. I no longer have any problem with that. That said, I'm not an idiot. And I do recognize that certain situations like that just make people uncomfortable. And because I never seek to offend or make people uncomfortable, I certainly wouldn't do something like put someone under a love potion or bullshit like that. Then again, I don't tend to address romance or especially sexuality in my games to any great degree. Will NPCs occasionally be involved in relationships? And so the, the players encounter like husbands and wives and people who are secret lovers and stuff like that as plot devices? Yes. Do the players end up in relationships? Almost never. That's just not something that needs to happen at the table and it always leads to problems anyway. But anyway, those are the rules that Angry no longer follows. He no longer lets players veto their deaths, and he no longer gives players absolute control over their characters to the point where they can just say, I don't want to be mind-controlled. Sorry, 
These are the risks you take when you play the game. And this actually goes into the sidebar that I included recently on the courage it takes to actually play a role-playing game. Because one of the things you have to do to play a role-playing game is create a character you love and invest emotions and energy and effort into that character and yet accept you do not have control over that character's fate. You have only as much control over that character's fate as a real person has over their own fate, which is to say, less than you want to think about. Anyway, with all of that said, I am now going to turn to the Q&A thread and spend the remainder of the time, however much it is, queuing and aing, or actually, I guess, aing some cues. And if a cue has occurred to you, uh, feel free to type it in. Um, and then, oh, I have 35 minutes left. Excellent. And I will answer it as I get to it, though I may bounce around a little out of order. And I'm going to apologize to Kitty Hat for Kitty Hat 5000 for that. Oh, also, one last thing. There was a pro. The, I forgot about this. So the, I have had an ongoing problem with Discord's or Patreon's Discord integration. A lot of creators have, and Patreon and Discord's integration is not the greatest. And sometimes it just doesn't work. Okay, I have had people who have just been automatically added to the to the Discord channel, so it has been working most of the time. Um, but I have also been getting a number of emails to patron support at or yeah, patron.support at angry.games. Um, because as per the instructions, if you have any trouble accessing your rewards as the message you get when you sign up to support me on Patreon and Subscribestar says, if you have any problems, email me at patron.support at angry.games. And everybody who did that was added to the Discord within 24 hours, sometimes 48 hours if it was a weekend. Okay. However, a number of people did not contact me and have apparently been waiting in the queue, unable to get into Discord, and meanwhile, I finally tracked down the niggling little problem. It was actually a combination of three little problems that was causing all the issues the other day. And as soon as I resolved it, the little Patreon Discord bot suddenly added like 20 people to the Discord. Um, uh, so to those, it's 20, 30, I don't know how many people it was. It was a bunch of people. So to those of you who were just added to the Discord because the patron bot finally got its wires uncrossed, I apologize that you have been waiting in the wings um, and welcome you to the channel. And also would stress that um, if you have any problems with any of your rewards, email me at patron.support at angry.games. Uh, Nitsu is saying it was a lot more than I thought when I first started reacting to them. Okay, now to the Q's and the A's, and the first question in it, or the first question comes from Logic Dragon, and it is something that I promised I would address like three weeks ago if somebody just nagged me a little bit about it, and then I waved them off, and I was like, okay, leave me alone about this, and then it never came back. Uh, so I apologize, and I'm not even sure who that was that I was supposed to, maybe it was Logic Dragon, but there's like four or five little, um, uh, little emphases uh, on there saying, I would like this answer too. So I have two answers and one of them you are not going to like. Okay, because there is how I would do this if I was writing my own role-playing game and then there's how you would do it for D&D. Okay. Oh, uh, Storyboard Hero is telling me 88 people were suddenly added to the Discord all at once. Hello, the 88 of you. Okay, a bit more than 20. I, like, I, I didn't care to count, okay? Anyway. Okay. Logic Dragon. How would you go about designing training costs and times for gaining class levels in D&D? And I'm going to assume, whenever I see D&D, that it is D&D 5e. And here's the secret. It doesn't matter. Do whatever the hell you want. Okay? And the reason that it doesn't matter and you could do whatever the hell you want is because of how I would do it if D&D would cooperate with me. It's like this. Hypothetically, when you build treasure tables, 
okay? You have some sense of what the players should spend money on in their downtime, right? So you might say, okay, players need to maintain their equipment, that the cost of maintaining equipment is on average X much, Players should be able to buy consumable items and that will cost them roughly X much because on average we should let people buy two or three consumable items between each adventure. Uh, and uh, players need to, to spend cost of living and you know cost of living varies depending on the amount of time they spend in town, which determines the amount of things they could do while they're in town. So that should cost X much because we think they should have about X many days, which is how many different activities they can do between adventures, right? which also yada, yada, yada. So you would figure all of this out and then you would co compute your treasure tables so that your treasure tables would give not quite enough money to do it all, right? You know, on average, it doesn't quite lead to enough money. Right. Okay. And then you would add on that, like, like this is this all figures into town mode. This, by the way, is um, what happened to town mode. Okay. And this is also what happened, by the way, to Angry Craft, because I assumed the designers of Dungeons and Dragons had thought through this. Stupidly, I admit. Okay, Angry Craft is not dead though. Okay, it's not dead. I just care a lot less about numerical balance now, which is what I'm explaining. The designers of D&D did not do this. They did not think this through. There is absolutely no thought, and I should have known because there's nothing to spend money on anyway other than magic items. Okay, but the designers gave no thought to how much treasure characters were getting at each level because who cares? There's nothing to spend it on anyway. It's just decoration. It's just a number they get to write. <laughs> okay, which is why I say if you're doing this for D&D 5e, it doesn't matter at all how much it costs to train and how much time it takes because the system doesn't give a shit anyway. So... Pick numbers. Pick whatever random numbers you want. Okay? That said, I did start working on it. And actually, I started working on it for 3E, which is a little more numerically rigorous. Um, but also, because it is very numerically rigorous in places, it's actually kind of hard to disentangle the progressions. Um. <laughs> so, anywho. Um, but here's the thing. Roughly speaking, uh, what I did, the exasperation is palpable, says Arthur, um, and angry is going a little unhinged. Yes. Yes, this is, okay, this is what happens. Okay. It, it, it's really getting to me because I'm nobody, okay? I'm just an internet asshole with a blog. I'm a friggin' accountant who's putting on airs as a game designer, Okay. Like, if it's the sort of thing where I'm just sitting here saying, well, surely they did this because that's the simplest and obvious, most obvious way to build this so that other GMs can just work with it without having to think twice about it and everybody's games work if they just follow the core rules, to discover they didn't drives me a little bonkers. Because then I come along and I say, well, because I'm smart enough to figure out how they did this, because I'm really good at reverse engineering this shit, I can slot something like a crafting system or a training system in there and it'll all work beautifully. And all I have to do is rewrite the treasure tables to account for the different costs that I have added to the system. And then they didn't do that work. So then all of the work I did trying to dis disentangle their costs and figure out their progression was all a waste of time. And I could have bent over with rubber gloves and a flashlight and pulled out a crafting system. And I could have saved myself 10 weeks of making spreadsheets. Anyway, the point is, Logic Dragon, um... You can really just set whatever reasonable numbers you did, you want. And what I did for my system was I basically broke uh, training down into five different broad kinds of training. 
Um, there's a little more to it than that, but essentially there, there is academic training um, for working with mentors or doing private research or having your own library or laboratory. Um, there's martial training where you spar, exercise, you know, there's practical training where you go out and just engage in skill use like crafting or hunting or burglaring or whatever. There's, um, oh, there's, there's ritual training where you are, you spend time in ceremony, vigil, vigil, ritual, whatever for warlocks and priests and things. And then, oh, there was networking where you spend a lot of time schmoozing and hanging out in guild halls and talking to other professionals and building contacts and reputation. Okay. Those were the five broad types of training and each, um, each character was able to choose, each class obviously had certain kinds of training that class could benefit from. And then each player would choose what they consider to be their character's primary mode of training, which is all else being equal, how does your character want to spend their downtime to, you know, to, you know, focus on their skills. And then they would choose a secondary mode of tra training, which was, wasn't as good. Okay, which didn't work quite as well for them, but it still worked in situation things. And then I broke down what I thought the relative costs and benefit and side benefits of those different kinds of training should be. So, for example, practical training, in addition to uh, converting your experience points into levels, you're also making a little money on the side because you're crafting or hunting or trapping or burglaring or whatever. You know, martial training is... Um, I can't remember what, what I did for martial training. I have to go back and look. Academic training is you unlock lore and, um, you know, uh, like new spells and, and, you know, adventure hooks and shit like that. And divine training was... I think divine training had a chance of just throwing blessings on you. Um, stuff like that. Okay, so anyway, I just sort of came up with a system and then I assigned relative costs on the basis of um, do you need facilities to do it? Like ritual training, you obviously need some kind of place you can go. Um, and rituals consume supplies, right? You need a certain amount of, you know, mallow sweet or fire and brimstone to burn or holy water to sprinkle or whatever. So there's supply costs. There's, then there's fixed equipment costs. Being an accountant. So obviously I broke this down by fixed and variable costs and then just did the math. And I don't necessarily recommend you go that far, but break it down into a couple of different groups of, of training types. And then decide relative costs for those in terms of, you know, building, building a facility, like a wizard could build their own library or they could pay a mentor a fee or, you know, membership to a guild with a library or whatever, you know, um, and then, you know, just assign costs based on that. Just think, what would it look like in the world? What should it look like? and figure out what they're actually spending money on. Some things you only have to spend money on once. You know, as you build a library, you buy more and more rare books, and then you have this library to do research in. Whereas as you conduct arcane experiments, you're constantly burning through supplies, but you're also buying lab equipment, stuff like that, right? And then key the costs and the training times to, uh, well, key the training times to roughly how much time do you want the players to be stuck in town mode? Right. And then figure at any given moment, they should be spending half to three quarters of that time just on training downtime. Right. So that they just so that the rest of their time is spent, like figure out all the things they have to spend time on when they're in town. And then roughly speaking, try to make sure they just don't quite have enough time. I will be addressing this more later in the year. I do actually have systems in the offing for training, for crafting, for blessings and curses, for equipment maintenance, and all the little pieces of town mode that are the reason why town mode fell apart in D&D because it has none of this shit. Okay. Now, Kitty Hat 5000, um, which obviously has more features than the Kitty Hat 4000, but is less expensive than the Kitty Hat 6000, would like to know, how would you design a magic system that doesn't have specific spells like D&D, but still gives different spellcasting classes their own separate identity? And that is an excellent question that I can't possibly answer 
in the 20 some odd minutes I might have left, okay? And I know this is specifically because I blurted out a random uh, comment today on just that topic. Uh, but that's a, because you're new here, Kitty Hat 5000. That is par for the course. Every once in a while, in the middle of his working, um, Angry will just wander into the Discord and interrupt a conversation with a random statement that he thinks sounds insightful, but at the same time is also designed to start an argument, and then he will run away. Okay, that is what he does. And a lot of times it's he's teasing something that he's going to deal with well in the future. What I am going to say is this. I'm going to say two things. Okay, or be chased away by a broom wielder. Thank you, Prosilus. Um, what I'm gonna I'm gonna say two things here. Okay, first of all, the biggest problem with designing a magic system is that everybody is stuck in DD. And even you are. Okay, Kitty Hat 5000, because you assume that there must be different spellcasting classes and that their identity must somehow be wrapped up in the spells they cast. For example, in Slapdash, the system I am currently working on to give away in a few months for free to my most ardent supporters and then to sell to everybody else, um, toward the end of the year I'll be selling it to everybody else, there are no spellcasting clerics or druids. The only spellcasters are wizards, so they cast arcane magic, and divine magic is not magic at all, okay? Anywho, um, so you, like, this is sort of the problem, is you have to start from ground zero, because the other thing is, the real key to designing a magic system is figuring out what the hell magic even is and what it can do and what its limits are. Um, but also, be, and D&D doesn't do that. Do, what, what is magic and what can it do in D&D? Magic can do anything there's a spell that it can do. Okay, if there's a spell for it, that's what magic can do. Magic is defined by the spell list. Okay, you can, like, you can claim there's lore explanations in the core rule books for what magic is, but they are all lies and contradicted by other things in the core rule books because nobody knows what the hell magic is or how it's actually used in D&D. So the point, what is magic in D&D? Magic is not a system. It is just a pile of whatever weird powers we want to give to any class. <laughs> Okay, that's sort of the problem. Here's a, here, and I'll give you an example. If I wanted to build summoning magic, the first thing I would do is not even worry about summoning magic. The first thing I would do is come out with a system for hirelings and allies and, and um, whatever, right? Hirelings, allies, pets, the whole shebang, which is something Wizards of the, or something Wizards of the Coast, something fantasy role-playing games should handle better, okay? And they don't. Like, I wrote that companion system last year. Well, after I write that system, I'll say, you know what? Druids should work in that system, right? That's something that seems to me to be druidy. So, druid, now that I have the system, I could say, and here's how druids fuck with that system, okay? Here's another thing. If I have a social system, if I know how social interaction works in my game, and I don't mean social combat system. Okay, I mean just literally understanding how a how a social encounter would play out, how it should play out, which is not something, by the way, you'll find in the rule books. You'll find rules for resolving social actions, but how does a social encounter actually play out? How does a group of players actually sway someone? <laughs> I mean, I know because, you know, I know how how you would do it in real life, and then I would try to run that, but then my players don't really know how to do it. Some of them are. So I have some very charismatic players. Um, so they're, they're a little bit better about it, but, you know, no one here is, you know, like, social expertise is a whole skill. I think this is in the article tomorrow, too. There's a whole bunch of shit in tomorrow's article. It is a grab bag of whatever crap I felt like writing about, which is why it's such a mess. Anyway, after I wrote the social system, then I would say, you know what? I think enchanters, Wizards who have, like, mind wizards should play with that system somehow. 
or bards should. And then I can find the levers that only bards can pull magically in there so that they could do the Gandalf trick of some Bilbo Baggins. Do not take me of some conjurer of cheap tricks. And then they get big and then, you know, that magical intimidation check. But really, apart from spells that do specific attacks, which are akin to weapons, by the way, like a fire bolt is akin to a bow. Same difference. It's a spell that, you know, and it's okay for weapons to have very defined effects. So magical weapons, which is to say attack spells, can do the same thing. Same with like defensive spells. It is okay to have spells like shield and mage armor and stuff that are just basically, it's the equivalent of a suit of armor that you can just magic into existence. Fine and dandy. It works the same way. But once you get away from that to like open-ended stuff, where you should really be looking at is skills. Okay. Um, and you can model a lot of spells as just magical versions of skills that can do things in slightly different ways. Like what Gandalf did was magical intimidation. And it can do some things that intimidation can't, but by the same token, intimidation through social means can do some things that magic can't, right? Things like that. So that's how I would do it. Anyway, so I did apparently answer that question pretty well in, what, nine minutes? Okay, we're going to have to go into some sort of lightning round to get through the rest of the questions here. So Athator, uh, the villain from Axiom Verge, asks, I'm designing my own mega dungeon using the lessons from your series, but as I plan to run it at the FLGS, the game store, Each session is max three hours and open table format. What design changes should I be cognizant of? Well, Athetos, here is the problem. You have set yourself an impossible task. You cannot design a mega dungeon of the kind I described in an open table format. Because what I was describing is a Metroidvania game. And one of the key elements of Metroidvania exploration which is not all exploration, but is a specific kind of exploration and discovery-based gameplay, is it plays on the player becoming familiar with the environment, encountering things, discovering ways around those things, and remembering and going back to those things. And the whole Mega Dungeon project was designed by that. If the players are switching out every week so that the player who encounters the place where you need the high jump boots is not there the session the high jump boots are discovered, the whole thing falls apart, okay? This is not a good model for an open table. I'm sorry. There probably are ways you could work around it, but you're better off just using a different model. In fact, just use a normal mega dungeon, the big open space that people delve into and then come back to the awning portal um, and bring their maps back and, you know, make them members of a guild so that, you know, at the end of each session, it's assumed the guild updates their master map of the dungeon so that at the very least, each group thereafter has the notes the previous group took. And if you do that, you might be able to even get away with some light Metroidvania elements, but I wouldn't go whole hog into my design with an open table, and I'm sorry. Jinbei Fang, or Jinbei Fang? Jinbei Fang. I assume it's Jinbei Fang. I just used the tension pool last session for characters infiltrating a noble's mansion, and it worked great. Any changes to tension dice rules coming in the next article you can preview? Yeah, I have been pitching that the, ten, the, the final version of the tension dice rules for a while now, haven't I? Well, okay, so here's the thing behind that. Uh, oh, wait, lightning round. Okay, the reason I have to come out with a new finalized set of rules for the tension dice is because I'm releasing the tension dice this summer as an actual Kickstartable project where you can buy actual Angry Games tension dice, and they need to come up with they need to come with final rules. Okay. 
There are a few little corrections that I'm making from the previous version of the rules where I'm going to make it more clear that there are two versions of the rules. One is the tension pool and one is the much more strict timekeeping version, the time pool. They are separate and different. Number two, I have actually designed clocks and calendars as visual aids the GM can use at the table to keep track of the time pool if they are going that way at different scales, delving scale, um, wilderness travel scale, and downtime scale. Okay. Number three, I have come up with a much more codified way of building a, um, a complication table. And the reason, the other reason why I have to release the final rules is because some of the things that figure into that, that, um, that complication table, including the concept of creeping doom, um, which is a complication that every day creeps up the table until it becomes more and more common is that is a place where things like equipment degradation and um, blessings that expire and things like that live. And those are elements of town mode. So I'm putting levers for town mode into the tension dice rules. That's what's happening. Okay. Anyway, Stu, do you consider dragons magical? Of course. Okay, if they weren't magical, they could exist without explanation. Okay, and they don't. So, there we go. Okay, Wokalak. Would you consider writing a series giving GMs detailed structured advice on planning and running macro-level gameplay loops, e.g. overland travel? I feel like that's something sorely missing from DMGs, and I wholeheartedly agree. In fact, you are knocking on the door of a concept that I can't promise I'm going to address in the next few months, but it is something that has to be addressed, and it is a vital component of adventure and campaign design um, and will be a major feature of any games I were maybe writing, and that is the concept of the macro challenge, how actions and encounters add up to winning a game, okay? Because when you think of, like, you play any board game, right? And what you do on individual turns is not so much about winning the turn. Like, you have to, obviously, there is about overcoming, you know, you know, optimizing the turn um, to do whatever. But each turn you take figures somehow into how you win the overall game. And right now, that's a thing that's sorely lacking because the only thing D&D offers, and many, many role-playing games, not just D&D and not just D&D likes, many role-playing games have trouble breaking out of what I call the encounter-based challenge. The encounter-based challenge is the only macro challenge in the game is surviving through all the obstacles to get to the goal. Okay, that's an easy macro challenge, and there is nothing wrong with it, okay? Even though lots of people decry it, oh, attrition-based gameplay is the worst. <laughs> it is not. It is a very easy starting point for people to uh, start building their own games with, and it absolutely belongs in role-playing games, so that if you don't do anything else as an adventure designer, there still exists a macro challenge in your game, which is just the resource management and overcoming all the challenges. Oh shit, I'm running out of time. So anyway, yes, this will be addressed, but it won't be addressed soon. Um, Starborn Hero, what's your favorite type of monster to include in games? Depends on the week, but I love devils. Okay, devils are my faves. Um, the, uh, Penguin, this, but also this, okay, Penguin is, uh, okay, this, but also, I don't understand, this, but also, this, but also, would you consider using a framework similar to one you brought up in an early Digressions of Dragons, where you brought up the idea of components as a consumable resource and a spell effect modifier? Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. Like, yes, that's that's a thing, but that's a thing that you tack on to a spell-based D&D system. Okay, that's not anything else. Okay, Kitty Hat 5000, again. Have you seen Puss in Boots, The Last Wish? I have not. I have heard that it is delightful. The last thing I went to the movie theater to see was uh, I took Tiny to see Children of the Corn, the new one. She is a horror fan. Um, and I just like going to movies, though lately I hate going to movies because 
most movies are terrible. The Children of the Corn was totally okay as a modern horror movie, though the changes that were made to the story to keep the game on message, that is to prove to everyone that the people who made the movie had all the right thoughts, um, also made the plot completely incoherent and the motivations nonsensical. You know, they wanted you to know that they think ecology is important and GMOs are evil um, and also that you know, you, other stuff too, but I'm not going to go into it. And it actually made all the motivations in the movie just totally incoherent. And also the main character, the improbably awesome teenage girl who was the only sane person. And therefore, you know, because everybody else in the town was evil, the murdered parents were evil. The sheriff was evil. The little children were evil. The corn monster was evil. Everyone was evil except the improbably awesome a well-educated biology-majoring teenage girl who was also the stupidest protagonist I have ever seen in any movie ever. And when she tried to claim at the end with her smug superiority that she had set everything up so she could win, I knew she was lying and you could prove it. She was an idiot. And if I had been in that movie, I would have resolved the entire situation um, there were actually two points where I turned to Tiny and said, here's where she could solve the problem in one move. Okay. Um, that said, I also would have died doing it. Okay. Because she was way too concerned about her own life. And when I am facing an evil corn monster that has possessed children and is now threatening to murder all the adults in the world and destroy the world, then you know what? I'm okay if I have to blow myself up to take it out. But that's just me. Anyway, she was a terrible protagonist and I hated her and I wish she had been devoured by the corn monster. Anyway, the end. Um, also at this time, news on Slapdash. Oh wait, I got a message from Proselytes. Five minute warning. And that came in a minute ago. Okay, so... Wilkalak, is there news on Slapdash? No, there is news on Slapdash next week. I have scheduled a Slapdash-specific uh, debrief, but it might have to get moved off another week because um, uh, we had to shorten our last session of Slapdash, and it looks like it's going to take us two sessions to get to the end of the alpha playtest now. Uh, but I might just go ahead and do it anyway, so... Uh, whatever. Nitsua asks, this but also is referring to the message he replies to. I don't understand that either. Okay, Jin Beifong, you said spells like shield that rely on players knowing the role of the on the dice are bad for games because the players get to close get to close to meta are the because the players get too close to meta are bad. How would you do spells abilities that react to die rolls better? I wouldn't. Dice don't exist in the world. Spells must react to things in the world. Okay, there would be no spell that lets you change a die roll after the fact or that lets you make a choice based on a die roll because dice don't exist in the world and characters can't see them. So wizards don't know that dice exist. Okay, shield was a perfectly serviceable spell when it basically gave you a shield bonus to your armor class. It's as simple as that. Okay, and that's the final question. I actually managed to answer all the questions, though I really don't have a voice left now. And I think I'm under time. So, with that said, I want to thank everybody. I Wilkalak, by the way, is saying wow, and I think that's in response to my rant against Children of the Corn Girl. Holy crap, she was a moron. Watch the movie! She was a moron! Okay, she was an utter and complete moron. She didn't deserve to be a hero. Okay, and I, I this is not like uh, they replaced the guy with a girl thing or anything else. I don't uh, give a crap about any of that. All I'm saying right now is that this particular protagonist was dumb as a bucket of rocks and deserved to die. Okay, anyway. Oh, if you're a Stephen King fan, don't see it. I just reread re the short story to remind myself. Um... And the short story, Children of the Corn, which appeared in his book, Night Shift, uh, the collection of, of his books, Night Shift. Um, it was an okay short story, you know, for what it was. Um, 
you know, it's, it was an early Stephen King short story. And, you know, he's, it's, oh, my God, and surprise, there's, there's he who walks behind the rose. There he is. And, you know, and Stephen King's always got downer endings. Um, oh, I read a story in there that I had never read before called Quitters, Inc. Um, Nitsua also won Angry Bingo, which I forgot to plug at the beginning of the game. But then, to be fair, I think Nitsua forgot to plug it before that, then. Okay. Quitters, Inc. was a really fun story. And that didn't that get turned into it either got turned into a movie or like uh, an episode of something like an Outer Limits episode or, or or wasn't there a movie like based on some of his short stories Night Shift or whatever shit uh, Proselyst is gonna cut me off one minute warning okay. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out. Uh, welcome to all you new people. Thanks, everybody, who's been reading and supporting. Thank you for all your patience as I've been trying desperately to get back on topic or schedule, topic, schedule, whatever. I'm off I'm off schedule. I'm off topic. That's my standard state of being. Thank you to Proselyst, the producer, uh, Nitsua for running the Angry Bingo. And for those of you who are new, there is a bingo game that you can participate on. Um... And thanks for everybody who asked questions and who put up with being uh, horribly abused for asking questions. Uh, and that is it. So I will talk to you all next month or before then at the Slapdash Debrief, which may or may not be rescheduled. The end. Good night.